Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are reading and exploring our way through the Aubrey Matry novels of our favourite author, novelist, Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we are reaching down a whole new volume this week, aren't we? Tell us a little bit about the old one so we can get acquainted with where we're headed in the new one. Oh, thanks, Ian. Would love to do that. Yeah, we just finished The Nutmeg of Consolation. And at the end of that book, Jack and Stephen had a pretty serious falling out when Jack would not allow Stephen to bring Padine away from New South Wales on the surprise. Bondin had taken Stephen and Martin to Woola Woola by boat. Stephen, remember, was stung by a platypus and almost died. Padine came along when they took Stephen back to the surprise. And when Stephen awoke, Padine was there. Jack was really glad to have his friend back. And Stephen told us how ardently, well, actually, he told Jack how ardently he wanted to get home again. And we know, you know, a lot of that driven by, you know, his desire to see this new daughter that he had just learned about. So now, as you say, Ian, if, if we're in the UK and, and the rest of the sane world, we, we pull down Clarissa Oaks. If you're here with me in the States, we pull down the true love. And maybe at some point, I invite our listeners, if you have any insights as to why these books are named differently in different parts of the world, we'd love to hear. But in that volume, this time in chapter one, the surprise sails for Easter Island and Norfolk Island. The crew seems to be acting a little strange, and Jack thinks just a little too happy since leaving Sydney. Jack's illness continues to the detriment of his temper. We remember that at the end of Nutmeg. Mm. And in this chapter, Jack meets the ghost of Cable Tears past in a (laughs) Dickensian contrast of young Jack and older Jack. Oh, wow. I love it. Young Jack and older Jack. Well, we start with older Jack. We start with contemporary Jack at the opening of chapter one here, standing or maybe leaning on the surprises taffrail, looking astern. It's fair weather. It's light breezes. They've just tacked. And Jack is watching the surprises wake, stretch away. Not very far, says the text. Not really very emphatic, but credible enough for the light breezes here. And since he's just come about... O'Brien, with Jack's eyes here, notices that the wake shows a little deviation, what he calls a curious nick, where she made a little wanton gripe, whatever the helmsman might do. And Mike, it's a lovely visual image of the idea of this little kink in the wake as the surprise settles on her new course. But it's a lovely image as well, personifying the surprise, giving her the character of a certain kind of person, certainly female, and wanton? Hmm. I wonder what that might hold in store for us. You know, it, it's funny. And when I was reading this, the you know, it kind of left me wondering, is, is, it, is this just telling us how well Jack knows the surprise? Or is O'Brien telling us to expect perhaps some light airs in this story and to warn us that things maybe aren't going to go as smoothly as we would like, no matter what we do? Who, you know, who knows? There's always, you know, it's it's funny. I think I'm now like Pavlov's dog with, with O'Brien's writing. You know, everything <laughs> is foreshadowing. We, we've tried to say, you know, not to say check off too much, but. Uh. Yeah. Well, and we, we can take our pick of foreshadowing in this chapter. Let, let's look as we go along and see what kind of foreshadowing we can get. First of all, 
slightly uncontrollable, dare I say it, female characters. That's foreshadowing number one from the surprise here in her wake. And as you say, Mike, this is also a reminder that Jack knows the surprise better than any other ship that he served in. He was a midshipman on her, and he has been her commanding officer in a couple of different guises for a number of books now. He loves her even more than the Sophie, his first command. He doesn't so much love her as a fighting machine, as the text explains to us. Neither her size nor her force had been in any way remarkable. Neither when he was a midshipman nor now when all the rest of her class had been broken up or sold out of the service. It says that he loves her as a ship, as a fast, eminently responsive ship that, well handled, could outsail any square-rigged vessel he had ever seen, above all on a bowling. Now he's talking, of course, about sailing close to the wind. He particularly remembers how the surprise had repaired his shattered fortunes, which is a little hark back to the events of the reverse of the medal when Jack and the surprise were both temporarily out of the Navy. He particularly loves her now that both he and she are back in the Navy, at least almost in her case, and Jack completely back restored again as a post-captain with his former seniority. And O'Brien reminds us here about the history of the mission, which might we, we need to cast our minds back, I don't know how many books, to when it was first introduced that Stephen, along with Jack, would go to Peru and Chile to frustrate French attempts to form an alliance with the people there who wanted independence from Spain and to get them to transfer their allegiance to Great Britain. As I say, that was all a long time in the past. And O'Brien reminds us once again here of this mission, a secret mission it had been under the cover of the surprise's character as a letter of mark, privateering and attacking American whalers. But the Spanish government had learned of the mission from a traitor in Whitehall, a highly placed unidentified traitor in Whitehall. That mission had been postponed. And Mike, we still don't know how quickly we're going to get back onto that mission. Jack and Stephen, as O'Brien catches us up here, had led a very different mission in the South China Sea to throw off the Spanish, while Tom Pullings had continued the surprises privateering. And as we all remember, at the end of the Nutmeg of Consolation, Jack and Pullings had rendezvoused at the Salibabu Passage before the trip to New South Wales where we had last left our heroes. And that's a pretty potted version. O'Brien does an even more elegant, slightly less potted version in the book. If anybody wants to go back and read those chapters again and remind yourselves just what a nice job he does of this high-level overview catching up over the last couple of books. So we started out with Jack, Mike. Let's go to Stephen for a second. How's he doing? Well, he's, he's recovered with extraordinary speed. O'Brien tells us that everybody can often hear him playing a happy piece that he's composed for the birth of his daughter. So, you know, everywhere around the ship, you hear Stephen on his cello here. And Jack hears this now, and, and he smiles because he's so deeply attached to his friend, Stephen. Yet he wonders that Stephen is so happy about having a baby. He remarks that Stephen is a born bachelor with no notion of domestic comforts, no notion of family life. You know, he says he's unsuited for marriage, especially marriage to Diana, who's, you know, dashing and brilliant and great at billiards and wisp, and somewhat of a rake who prefers breeding horses to books. So, you know, it, all of that leads Jack to conclude, you know, a quite improper for Stephen. So that Diana and Stephen don't seem well matched, uh, you know, in paper or in person here. Yet somehow Jack thinks they've produced a baby, and and as only Jack can say, and a girl at that. Yeah, what kind of a baby? Thank you, Jack. Well, he concludes thinking, though, about Stephen, saying he longed for a daughter. I know that, and it's very well that he should have one 
but I wish she may not prove a platypus to him. Boy, and I tell you, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, ominous foreshadowing. Whoa, wait a minute here. Uh, well, he's just about to add some thoughts on how relations you know, are between men and women generally and parents and children, all of that not being good. When Davidge cries out, you know, every rope and end and that cry cuts off his thoughts. It's lovely how we swing between the points of view of these two characters. There's, there's quite a lot of POV switching as we go through this first chapter. This order, every rope and end, just means coil and hank and secure and belay and maybe even Flemish, you know, make a little spiral coil on the deck. Out of every rope that we've had to haul or ease away or swig in or tighten up in this process of going about. That means a lot of sheets and braces and everything else besides. And Jack realizes that telling everybody to coil and make good it's pretty superfluous. This is a crew of right seamen. Coiling down, running rigging, and braces and bowlines is automatic, perfunctory, and even superfluous. They're already doing it, and Jack congratulates himself for a second here. Reflects on how, for him anyway, there's no better life than life at sea. He's in the best position to enjoy that. He's got an excellent ship, as we know. He's got a sound crew. Before him lie thousands of blue water sailing miles before he reaches Easter Island, and he's got the knowledge that he'll likely be offered a seagoing command as soon as he gets home, quite likely in a ship of the line. Given all of this professional happiness and the fact that his friend Stephen had made an astonishing recovery from the platypus sting of the closing chapter of the previous book, Jack wanders to himself about why he's really still out of order. Then why, he asks himself, am I so cursed snappish, cross in the morning and bloody-minded with it like an old and ill-conditioned man? It is discreditable in the last degree. Even though Jack is profoundly attached to Stephen, he's still unhappy about all the government interference that Stephen's duel had caused him in New South Wales. Uh, but Jack thinks, you know, he can't blame Stephen for having been born a Catholic or for resenting a gross insult. But Jack does blame Stephen for planning Padine's escape and not telling Jack until the last minute, you know, and telling him what was a really bad time. Jack had given his word that no convict would leave Port Jackson on his ship. He was exhausted, frustrated by a conscienceless woman, and liverish from the extreme heat and all the official dinners. We'll hear more about that woman later. Mm. Now, this difference of opinion was so strong between Jack and Stephen that it really endangered their friendship, O'Brien tells us. And even though Padine had escaped with the consent of his master at Wulu Wulu and the consent of the Surprise's crew and was a day's journey north of Port Jackson, so technically Jack had not violated his word, Jack felt, O'Brien tells us, manipulated, which he disliked extremely. Mm. He had, you know, that manipulation was also part of that woman story. Can you fill us in on that? Oh, I'd love to. And Mike, it's funny, this is one of the episodes in this book that I had sort of forgotten or pushed to the back of my mind and rereading it again, my kind of, you know, heart sinks a little bit. Jack Aubrey getting himself into a classic Jack Aubrey bad situation here. This manipulation had been on shore um, in the person of a woman named Selina Wesley. And after remaining chased all the way through this long voyage, Jack, beginning to feel the old sexual frustration building here, had met her in Sydney, what he called a fine, plump woman with a prominent bosom, an indifferent reputation, and a roving eye, all of which makes her kind of right in Jack Aubrey's wheelhouse in terms of female company. He'd met her at several of the governor's dinners, 
She had naval connections. She had professed the opinion that celibacy was a great nonsense, quite unnatural. And during a garden concert interval, had asked Jack to walk her down to the tree fern dell. And Mike, the, Mike, this has got the ball in Halifax and the surgeon's mate written all over it here. He, Aubrey, is in this, what he calls a boyish state of desire. They had walked past the lanterns behind a summer house and they were congratulating themselves on being out of Mrs. MacArthur's eyes when a man stepped out of the shadows. She turned and thanked Captain Aubrey for escorting her down, saying she was sure he could find his way back, steering by the stars. And Mike, he was clearly being mocked pretty crudely um, and manipulated by this woman. And part of me thinks, well, thank God for that, because he didn't get to commit adultery again. And part of me is thinking, and this is going to really add on to the, the pile of his frustration here. Now, we were talking before about foreboding and foreshadowing that build up in this chapter. So we've already had two to add to our list here. We've got the foreboding of Jack and Stephen, Mike, are really still not at, uh, you know, at peace with each other. This dissatisfaction between them is still there. We talked about it at the end of the previous book, and it's still here. And now we've added in this reminder of the long distance from home and the sexual tension that that brings, especially for Jack Aubrey. And he comes within a whisker of, uh, of blotting his copybook here. And who knows where that's going to take us? Discontent between Jack and Stephen, sexual tension aboard ships, stick a pin in both of those two things. But we're not done, right? No, no, it just gets worse because now we have Jack standing here ruminating on all his sources of discontent. So he's starting to add to them. You know, he's thinking about the the faint and even dead contrary airs that had held them close to Bird Island for so long. The, the false trade wind that kept them beating up and wearing for days. You know, he thinks, you know, I've only got two midshipmen and both of them are unsatisfactory. So, you know, Reed's sort of gotten above himself because the crews indulged him so much after he lost his arm. And that Oakes, you know, he's thinking... He's like this 17, 18 year old who goes about, as O'Brien writes, singing in a most unofficer like manner, a kind of bullcalf joy. Mm. And then he says, you know, he starts to think about Nathaniel Martin, says, what, well, you know, I don't really want to mention him, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he says, you know, he's kind of an impossible man to dislike, yet Jack could not love him either. And we remember this complaint from last book, you know, that Martin takes up way too much of Stephen's time. And then Jack thinks there's the strange, unaccountable behavior of the frigate's people. Now, Jack says he realizes they're not like the typical Navy crew. They've got their usual talkative independence as privateer partners on the mission, but that since Sydney, they were fuller of mirth, had private expressions causing gales of laughter, and they often looked at him with a knowing smile. And that even the officers, including Pooling, seemed to have some of the same oddness. So this is this is all really getting under Jack's skin a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. But he thinks to himself, even all of these can account for what he calls this growing crossness, this waking up ready to be displeased, this insipid ill humor, anything likely to set it off. He'd never felt like this when he was young, and he'd never been made game of by a young woman either. So he's, you know, he's really, you know, I'm kind of glad he's, he's got this self-awareness here 
And he's thinking to himself, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to go to Stephen. I'm going to ask him for a blue pill, maybe some rhubarb, you know, maybe several blue pills, because now that I come to think of it, it's been an age since I've been to the head. So <laughs> and on top of everything else, he's thinking, yeah, and my bowels aren't working very well either. So, you know, ah, sorry, Jack. So there we have Jack not in the best of shape. Um, he passes the wheel as he goes to see Stephen and the quartermaster and the con and the helmsman both turn to look at him. And this is something that's not expected and he takes exception to, especially given the result that it has for the ship. The surprise comes up half a point because they're distracted and the topsails give a shutter and Jack roars at them. Mind your helm, you infernal lubbers. What in hell's name do you mean? Leering at me like a couple of moonsick cowherds. Mind your helm, do you hear me there? Mr. Davidge, no grog for Krantz or Weber today. By the way, I, I love the way he's just pulled these two names of these two seamen, Krantz and Weber, out of nowhere. It sounds absolutely <laughs> keeping. Everybody on the quarterdeck is shocked. I think they're shocked at the inattention of the quartermasters and they're shocked at the, uh, the blazing round that they get back from Jack. And meanwhile, from way forward, Jack hears a gale of laughter from the forecastle. So everything is still not okay here. Jack asks to consult Stephen, and Stephen says, well, if it's going to be an intimate conversation, you should close the skylight. You know, he's expecting a consultation about a dose of something that Jack might have picked up through careless choices of company over in Sydney. But no, Jack says it's not intimate, but he closes the skylight anyway, sits on the locker, and tells Stephen that he feels, in his own words, damnably hipped, cross even in the morning, much ill-used, and asks if there's a medicine for good temper and general benevolence. By the way, Mike, if if there were such a thing, then we could all take it, right? That would, that would be great. The the ultimate happy pill. Sign me up. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stephen takes a look at his tongue. He examines him. He tells him that the problem is his liver. Mike, he, he's always calling out the liver as the root of Jack's problems here. Um, he says, I have disliked your liver for some time now. Dr. Redfern disliked your liver. And he goes on to call Jack out for eating too much, for drinking too much, for giving up on exercise. He notices that Jack's abandoned his morning swim, despite the currently slow pace of the ship, the calm seas, and the absence of sharks. So that's one bit of foreshadowing that we don't have to worry about. No sharks yet. And Jack says, well, I've got this guy, Mr. Harris. And by the way, this, this was out of the blue for me. Hang on a second. Jack's been consulting another physician. Well, right. he explains here, Mr. Jack had said that swimming would be bad for Jack. Something about closing the pores and throwing yellow bile upon the black. And Stephen says, who is this character, Mr. Harris? He said, oh, he's a man of singular powers, recommended by Colonel Graham, while Stephen had been out on his bush trip, and talks about using um, herbs only grown in his garden, rubbing the spine with oils, much cried up in Sydney, says Jack. And Stephen says, he's seen too much of this, well-educated men running after these fellows with singular powers. He says, I'll bleed you. And I'll mix you a little cologog and suggests that now they're out of the territory of this, this magician, the thaumaturge, maybe Jack could go back to his sea bathing and climbing briskly to the topmost pinnacle. And Mike, there, we're still in the world of the liver and the bile here. A cologog is a compound that stimulates the action of the gallbladder, stimulates it to produce bile. So clearly, Stephen thinks that that whole part of Jack's system is disordered. Yeah. And Jack's list of, of complaints to the doctor is not over. Mm -hmm. He asked even if he has anything for desires. And by that, he means patience, he says, with importunate pricks. Huh. Well, 
Yeah. That's, and he's not talking about midshipmen for crew either. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think I got, so. I got a quarter deck full of them. <laughs> Little Reed, right. he's an unfortunate prick. Yeah. <laughs> well, Stephen says there's no pill, but there is a little operation. He huh. described it's you know a moment's pang and then freedom for life. A mild sailing on an even keel, tossed by no storms of passion, untempted, untroubled, sinless. And then Stephen immediately follows that and says, of course, all of his patients, even the ones that say they give anything to be free of their torments, always decline the operation. Yeah, uh, funny old thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But Stephen says, unless there is a physical anomaly, all Stephen can do is suggest that, you know, these people learn to control their emotions, but that few succeed. However, you know, Stephen goes on to say that with Jack, there is a physical anomaly. Yeah, he tells us how Plato and the ancients had declared that the liver was the seat of love. He comes out with this very elegant little phrase, cogit amare ye cur, said the Romans. I, might, I have no idea about my Latin pronunciation there, but we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that in a second. Therefore, Stephen's earlier advice about diet and exercise still applies to the need to preserve Jack's liver. However, Stephen says... You shouldn't have too much of a high expectation from any, any remedies that I might prescribe for the Blue Devils. He says, youth and unthinking happiness are not to be had in a bottle. Well, some people clearly would disagree with Stephen, but I think he's fundamentally right. A certain melancholy and irascibility accompany advancing age. And Mike, I'm sure you, you and I are going to have this problem at some point in the future. But hopefully this is all lying a long way ahead of us, right? <laughs> yeah, advancing age, he says, equals ill temper. Middle-aged men realize they can't do certain things. Their looks are deserting them. They have big bellies. And although they burn, they are not attractive to women. So they rebel. Ha, he says, fortitude, resignation, and philosophy are of more value than any pills, red, white, or blue. And, and Mike, I, I love the fact that we, we can't really tell whether this is Stephen making game of Jack in a rather elaborate way or whether he's kind of digging in a little bit and making a point that he knows just how unreliable Jack's sexual conduct is and whether he's just teasing about the fact that he's finally only now come to ask for Stephen's help in the physical life. This Latin quote, cogit amare yecur, the liver knows how to love. And uh, this is apparently according to a fellow called Lactantius, who was Christian advisor to the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was the Roman Emperor right in the final days of the Roman Empire, just as the empire was about to split into the Western and the Eastern. Um, I think he had a book called Divine Institutes. Have I got that right, Mike? Right, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Jack says, you know, Stephen, you can't possibly consider me middle-aged. And, you know, Stephen says, well, navigators are short-lived, so middle age comes earlier for them than for what you might call a quiet abstemious country gentleman. Stephen goes on to tell Jack that, you know, he's led a very unhealthy life. He's always exposed to the falling damps, often wet to the skin, up all hours of the night, wounded the deer knows how many times, cruelly overworked. And then Stephen says, no wonder your hair is gray. And Jack, yeah, Jack absolutely protests. He says, you know, my hair is a, you know, a very nice buttercup yellow. And Stephen <laughs> reaches around, you know, uh, kind of unties Jack's bob there. It pulls his ponytail around and Jack's looking at it thinking, you know, oh my God, there's all these gray hairs. This thing looks like a badger's nest. He says. 
<laughs> so, whoa, you know, I guess one of the nice things about not being surrounded by mirrors all day huh? and, and not on Zoom calls all day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, by the way, th- this is yet again um, Jack Aubrey lacking self-knowledge in, in the most trivial way. It's very, very funny. Well, having taken care of, uh, of, of Jack's vanity here, Stephen tells him that two of his patients have been to the two islands that we are now headed to go right past. Owen, who's in the sick bay, had been to Easter Island, and Phillips, also in the sick bay, had been to Norfolk Island before it was abandoned as a penal station after his ship had been wrecked there. And Jack makes the connection straight away. He says, ah, that must have been the Sirius, and that must have been Captain Hunt, and he described how the ship had been heaved onto a coral reef by a swell. And Mike, I think when we look into the uh, the sources here, th- there was a real ship called the Sirius. She was actually commanded by a captain called John Hunter, not Hunt. He was a Scottish officer who was made post in 1786, so quite a while before Jack here, and being aged 48 at that time, he would have been a, a generation older than Jack. Um, he had been part of Commodore Phillips' expedition to colonize New South Wales. He'd explored other locations as potential colonies as well. And and exactly as Jack says here, had been wrecked on Norfolk Island in 1790 during a storm. He went on to become a vice admiral in 1810. The Sirius, we learned, was originally a 22-gun storeship, originally named the Berwick, but renamed. And after the wrecking of the Sirius in 1790, lots of her crew transferred to the hired Dutch merchant Snow named, get this, Wachsamheit. Hmm. Not to be confused with the 38-gun HMS Sirius launched in 1797, which captured the Dutch corvette Wachsamheit in 1798 and was later lost under Captain Pym in 1810, as we read about in the Mauritius Command. So lots of connections with Wachsamheit here. And to make it even more interesting, none of these Dutch ships are to be confused with the Dutch 74 also named Wachsamheit, which Jack had sunk in Desolation Island. That one, it turns out, was actually made up by O'Brien. The Dutch word Wachsamheit means watchfulness, and uh, that would probably translate, as we learned from the Patrick O'Brien muster book, into an English ship name, something like Alert. And I'm pretty sure there's been an HMS Alert on quite a few occasions in the past, Mike. Nice, nice. I, I love all these names. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated, you know, just thinking back to last week, your visit to Caird and thinking, yeah. wait, how did people keep up with all this stuff? And now, you know, you, you saw that, you know, having all the records like that. It's just awesome there. But speaking of the wreck of the Sirius, Jack's reminded of their near wreck on Inaccessible Island. And Jack says he was terrified. And he asked Stephen if, if you know, Stephen was terrified. And, and I love Stephen's answer. So we get one of those classic O'Brien moments of humor. Stephen says, I was not. I do not suppose there is my equal for courage in the service. But then you recall, I was downstairs playing chess with poor Fox and knew nothing of it until we were delivered. So, right, you know, absolutely unfazed. Didn't know what was going on. But Stephen says that Martin hopes they'll be able to go ashore on Norfolk Island so that, you know, he, Martin, can see the mutton birds, one of his beloved petrels. Jack says he's happy to go ashore if the surf allows and that he, Jack, will speak with Phillips and Owens before they get to the islands tomorrow. Now, Stephen reminds Jack of the famous Norfolk Island pine. And Jack says, oh, no, you know, you don't have to worry about that, Stephen. We've already tried. They're no good for making ships. And Stephen says, no, no, no. Wasn't talking about the ships. I wanted to see if that prodigious and curious tree 
has equally prodigious and curious beetles. So we're, you know, it's, it's funny. We've had Jack and Stephen, you know, back intimate together, Jack confessing kind of his inmost feelings, Stephen, you know, doctoring and, you know, really trying to help him. And now we see their worlds apart again, you know, this yeah, tree, yeah. Oh, no good for making ships. Wait, I might be able to find uh, a beetle for Sir Joseph here. <laughs> Well, that's that's not the only thing that's going to be a little rub here between Stephen and Jack, because Jack mentions that twice the day before he'd been thinking about Nathaniel Martin. Once, he says, because as part of Jack's father's estate, Jack has the rights to recommend clergy to particular um, smallholdings. They're called advousons. And Jack's got three of these and wonders whether Martin might be interested in one or other of them. Stephen asks if they're of any value. That is to say, do they have land and an income attached to them? Jack says, I don't know yet. He goes on and says that the second time Martin's name had occurred to Jack was when Jack was stringing his fiddle and realized, he says, that love of music and the ability to play well had nothing to do with character. This sounds a little bit like it ought to be obvious, but Jack's just realizing here that it's because a person has, has an occupation and a passion and an interest and even some skill that you find some common cause where that doesn't make them a through and through good character, at least not in terms of their compatibility with you. Martin, we discover, or as Jack reminds us, had two Oxford friends who play very well, yet in contrast, Standish, who was around during Letter of Mark and 13 Gun Salute, was really not quite the thing and had ratted on them, whereas John Paulden from Nutmeg of Consolation, one book ago, had played better, was the kind of man with whom you could sail around the world. And what really astonishes Jack here is that Martin had played with both of these two men, these two capital hands with an instrument. Neither of them, he says with regret, had persuaded Martin to tune near to true pitch. And this is a little bit of a snarky comment aimed at Martin, mentioned by Jack, and Stephen doesn't take it very well. Jack regrets that this fling should strike Stephen in this way. And he adds, it is odd then that they should both have become papists and Jack's laid on a leash or straight away here. Stephen says, you find it odd that they should revert to the religion of their ancestors? Uh, no, not at all, cried Jack, feeling low. I only meant it as though there were an affinity between music and Rome. And uh, Jack really can't come up with a well-turned phrase about anybody at the minute, can he? He, he really can't. It's awful. Uh, well, Stephen just completely changes the subject and mentions that you know, he understands they're going to be having divisions tomorrow. And Jack says, you know, yeah, he's really looking forward to it. They've had to miss that. It'll help pull the men together and says in an inquiring tone, I'm looking forward to pulling them together because they seem to have been behaving strangely, simpering, making antic gestures. And Stephen, who knows perfectly well why the men are doing this, only says, well, divisions, I must remember to shave. <laughs> And we leave it there. So, Stephen, never an informer, right? Oh, my gosh. Mike, this is a really cold moment for me. This reminds me of when they were really falling out with each other back in Post Captain. You know, Stephen's right. really not opening himself to Jack at all. He says, oh, I'm going to think about this other thing over here. Well, uh, if we want to take a step back from all of this building ill will between Jack and Stephen, maybe then this is a good time, Mike, for us to take a break ourselves and say we'll be right back after these short messages. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you're all prepared for divisions tomorrow or whatever may be on your calendar. And and I hope you have had no falling out with your dear friends here. Well, the next day, you know, with Norfolk Island's Mount Pitt about 12 to 13 leagues on the horizon, the surprise beats to division. And the crew has spent a good bit of time preparing about this and also joking a lot about Mr. O in the middle watch. Mm. So, you know, we're still hearing all these little things going on between the crew. Now, the Man of War's men, you know, Jack's old crew from the Royal Navy days, try to get their privateer shipmates to quiet down, but to no avail. Uh, finally, you know, everybody's together, pulling to the reports of all the officers. He reports to Jack that everybody's present and, you know, properly accounted for, and they go about the ship. In Davidge's afterguard, men like Killick look a bit disapproving, but very proper, while others had a look that Jack couldn't quite figure out. Was it amusement, knowingness, cynicism? And Jack thinks it's just not the usual frank, amiable vacuity (laughs) (laughs) about being in in the presence of himself, right? Oh, it's great. I mean, Jack would really like it for people just to have their eyes kind of glazed over. He can't deal with all of this, all this extra context, all this extra layer of meaning here. It's not what Jack's about at all. Um, He moves on as they're going around the ship um, to West's wasters, the men in the waste. And one of these men, Owen, who's in the sick berth, describes being left on Easter Island by his shipmates in a fur trader who'd had to claw off a lee shore there. Even though he says his shipmates got away, they were all murdered and scalped later and their ship burnt for iron, so he'd actually had a lucky escape. Owen says he got on well with the Easter Islanders, though even though they were thieves and, as he says, ate one another rather more than was right. I'm not over particular, but it makes you uneasy to be past a man's hand. A slice of what might be anything, well, I don't say no when sharp set, but a hand fair turns your stomach. He says he'd learned to learn to speak some of their language. Several of the crew had spoken Polynesian, as they call it, speaking South Seas, and talks about the languages of the Society Islands and the sandwiches, which takes us over to Hawaii, and they'd learned that from their time as fur traders. And this other patient, Phillips, keeps trying to turn the conversation over to Norfolk Island, which is where he had been. And Mike, for, the, for those next few paragraphs here, we get these nice chopping and changing moments where on tour of the ship with Jack and we go back into the sick bay where Phillips and Owen are kind of trying to outdo each other in their anecdotes about these two islands that they know really well. Yeah, and so, you know, to your pointing and back up on deck, you know, Jack, uh, Mr. Smith, the gunner, and Reed reach the end of the gunner's division and there's a great lee lurch um, which throws Jack into the bosom of Nehemiah Slade, you know, one of the Sethians here, yeah. who is sudden desk gun captain. And there's this general roar of honest mirth. And, and Jack thinks maybe that accounted for some of the amusement in the next division, Mr. Oaks Fortopman. And meanwhile, down in the sick berth, Mr. Owen is still at large here. He's talking about the sculptures that he'd seen on Easter Island. He calls them moles, squared off stone platforms, 300 foot long, 30 feet high, topped with great images, 
carved out of gray rock. And Mike, these, these are the images, these kind of heavy-browed monolithic statues that we all kind of imagine when we think of Easter Island. He describes them as coves as much as 27 foot high and eight foot across the shoulders, many thrown down and some standing ones with great red stone hats. And there's a little bit of interest here behind these moles and these statues. He's describing what are known in the, uh, in the local language as ahus, large platforms, on which the famous Maui, so Moai means statue, these large heads had once sat. These iconic giant heads, which also had bodies that were discovered earlier and later, had been carved from volcanic rock many, many centuries ago, between um, 1100 and 1680, according to the internet, and they're never wrong. Um, they're thought to be a physical incarnation of a deceased ancestor, perhaps a deified important person. There are actually three periods of the building of these carved stones and figures. There had been some desecration of various versions of these heads. When Captain Cook visited, he had observed the heads in place on platforms as described by Owen. So this this kind of famous view that we have of the Easter Island statues chimes in very closely with the exploration and discovery that was happening in the South Pacific being described for us here again by Owen. Meanwhile, Mike, back to the captain's inspection. Yeah, Jack arrives at the forecastle. It is received by Mr. Bulkley, the boatswain, and Mr. Bentley, the carpenter. And the equally grave forecastle hands, you know, often who are often bald on top with waist-length pigtails. So oh, middle-aged men, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we love this. But they're yeah, they're they're the old, steady, reliable men of oarsmen. So Jack's a great place here. But there are no ship's boys behind them like there would be on a regular commission. And there in their place stand Emily and Sarah kind of towing their line, making their bob along with Jemmy Ducks. Jack moves on to the galley, the lower deck. It's completely cleaned and dusted, everything laid out perfectly. The midshipman's berth, which, you know, he kind of thinks to himself are really too big now that they only have reed and oaks there because the surgeon's mate, Martin, and the captain's Clark Adams have moved into some of the empty rooms in the gun room. You know, since they don't have the purser, the master, the marine officers, there's a lot of open cabins in the gun room. Now, Jack doesn't check the gun room, but if he had, O'Brien tells us it's polished, it's ready. And instead, Jack and Tom move to the sick berth. So the two, you know, kind of parallel tours are now coming together here. Yeah, it's I think this strikes me as a very cinematic thing. I can also almost imagine the cutting between these two points of view. And, and by the way, when's it ever coming? The movie or the TV series? We, we for yes. sure don't know. This cutting between these two points of view finally converges in this next little episode here. Phillips and Owen in the sick bay there are continuing their who's been to the most amazing island competition. Owen is talking about thousands and thousands of noddies, these birds, terns he would call them otherwise, that are on Easter Island. And Phillips is talking about mutton birds and how you can kill twelve or 1,400 mutton birds a night on Norfolk Island. They stop their talking when they hear the captain coming. And we turn to this conversation, this rather formal conversation between Jack and the doctor. Um, Jack tell Stephen that he hopes that pumping the ship has answered, particularly thinking about the smell and the, the uh, sanitation for the sick berth here. Dr. Maturin replies that the sick berth is tolerably sweet, but it's not the nutmeg. And he goes on to mention that he's aware that the French bury their dead in the ballast, and with what with this being originally a French ship, that might account for the, uh, for the smells. Jack says, no, 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 the ballast has been changed many times since. Stephen's glad about that, 
but he asks for another ventilating pump. He talks about how in this heavy, breathless air, the patients have a tendency to grow fractious, even to quarrel. I'm like, this is a little bit of Stephen the parent. You know how sometimes parents kind of leave remarks in their own conversation, which are really meant for the kids who are listening. I think this is Stephen silently chastising here or indirectly chastising Owen and Phillips in their competition. But maybe he's also addressing the comment to Jack because of Jack's currently bad, maybe even quarrelsome temper. Jack is uh, is inclined to give a little and take a little. He says, make it so, Captain Pullings, talking about the uh, the ventilation. And he says, if any hand should presume to quarrel, let his name be entered in the defaulters list. Mm, there you go. Well, Stephen points out Phillips and Owen, who he'd mentioned to Jack earlier, who'd been to these islands. And Jack asked each of them how they are. You know, Philip says he is weary indifferent, sir, I'm sorry to say. You know, weary with a W. And Owen says, I do not complain, sir, but the burning pain is something cruel. And this sets Jack off. Jack, who perhaps wishes that he had a little burning pain now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he says back to him, well, then why the devil don't you keep out of brothels, you damn fool, a man of your age? Low knocking shops in Sydney Cove of all places where the pox is the worst in the world. Of course you burn and you are always at it. Every goddamn port. If your pay were docked for the venereals as it is in the regular service, you would not have a penny coming to you when you pay off. Not a brass farthing. And then the tax reads continuing. Captain Aubrey still breathing hard. Ask the other patients how they did. They were all much better. Thank you, sir. So I think everybody everybody learned. Here's the here's the wrong answer and the right answer to Captain Aubrey in his current mood here. So I love those other patients' reaction. And I note that nobody jumps to add the captain's name to the defaulters list for his fractious behavior. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. very good. And Mike, we're going to go on building up our list of potential pieces of foreboding here. We've had foreboding about... Uh, you know, sexual desire. We've had foreboding about shipwrecks in general. We're going to be sailing past islands, though, and we dig into the perils of being close to an island. Jack goes on and asks Phillips about the wreck of the Sirius, and he hears about all the coral wreck everywhere in shore. No holding ground if you were to want to throw out an anchor. Owen, who is still one-upping here, immediately adds, oh, it was far worse, far worse off Easter Island, coral rock far offshore, and Phillips takes over again and he goes back into his long story about Captain Hunt being heaved in shore without taking a breath. And Owen is trying to break back in. Jack gets up and says he'll have his clerk come back, see the men separately and takes notes. He clearly doesn't want to be kind of feeding their little troll between each other here. He's off to see what good the pumping has done about the rats and the smell. And he asks Padine for a lantern. And Mike, we, we're being held back and held back inch by inch here from Jack making progress forward towards the discovery that's coming. Padine is the figure behind all this kind of physical comedy here. Padine lights it, drops it, lights it again, drops it, and gets cursed. Cursed, says the text, for an unhandy grass-combing lubber in a tone of much greater severity and exasperation than was usual in Captain Aubrey, who left a disapproving silence behind him and a certain consternation. And Mike, all this one-upping between Owen and Phillips reminds me that this is a bit of a Royal Navyism. It's sometimes called black-catting. Oh, you did this? Oh, well, I did that. You got this terrible story? Well, my story is even worse. If you like this, go on Twitter and look for a Twitter account called HMS Massive, um, which is a, a, twi a parody, parody Twitter account aimed at uh, 
at keeping going this ancient royal naval pastime of one-upping each other. <sighs> Meanwhile, we're back with Stephen. Yeah, Stephen, of course, never discusses the captain with anyone. He does not discuss his friend Jack in the gunroom, but he does speak of his patient Aubrey with Martin in order to benefit from Martin's good sense and wide reading. So in Latin, Stephen says that he's never seen so much irascibility, so continuous and such cumulative irritation as in this patient. Clearly, Stephen says, you know, his remedies are not working and he fears that this is not an ordinary congestion of the hepatic duct, but a disease acquired in New South Wales. Martin wonders if Stephen means the kind of disease that sailors usually pick up in port. And Stephen says, no, no, no. The patient specifically said with surprising vehemence that there had been no commerce with Venus. So, you know, Jack was really upset. And, you know, we're learning multiple times about this interaction with the woman at Sydney. Now, Dr. Redfern had told Stephen about forms of hepatitis that he'd seen there in New South Wales. And what's more concerning to Stephen is all the case studies that he'd read in some of Redfern's records about extreme emotion, melancholy, despair, extreme irascibility with no known agent while they're living, but which autopsies later connected with the liver, something they called Botany Bay liver. Hmm. And Martin has this fascinating line. You know, Martin says, it's deeply saddening to see what disease can do to a whole cast of mind, to a settled character. And sometimes our remedies are just as bad. How it appears to draw in the boundaries of free will. And, you know, I, you know, I was just, I, you know, I kind of really got stopped on this one because it was coming out of Martin's mouth. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't think he, or, you know, it sounds like a Stephen kind of thing, although kind of interestingly with Martin as well. And it really paused me when I was reading to start thinking about this, stuff, yeah. that yeah. how nowadays we so often attribute behavior to brain chemistry and, and emotion and personality, and people start to define themselves that way. And, and I was thinking here with Jack, you know, Jack clearly has some self-awareness about what's going on, yeah. but he doesn't seem to be able to do much about it. We're getting scene after scene of Jack kind of losing control of his temper over really little things here. So I'm, you know, I've got my fingers crossed and I, I'm kind of picking up on Martin's free will here thinking, okay, Jack, you know, maybe there's not a blue pill for this. Maybe, you know, Stephen doesn't have exactly the answer, but I hope you can continue to look into this. And, and I'm wondering in my own mind is, is you know, what's yeah. going to help Jack? What's he got here? Yeah. It, it's funny, isn't it? We got this kind of low key insistence in the last couple of chapters of the previous book that Jack was not merely a little depressed. He was sickening for something, and we're back here to this insistence that there's some kind of physical malady coupled with the low mood for Jack. And we're really wondering about it. It's, it's another kind of foreshadowing in this chapter. Are, are we going to get Jack getting sicker and sicker and more and more melancholy? Where's that going to take us? And Jack's self-awareness is an interesting issue here as well. You know, he's, he's aware of the state that he's in, but being aware of it and doing something about it are, are, are two different things. And also this, this phrase settled character that Martin used, it reminded me a lot of some of the meditations on 
aging and youth and maturity way back even as far as uh, master and commander so be- between all these different things happening it seems to me that o- o'brien wants to talk to us about aging and about mood and about character and the influence of body over mind and vice versa and it just so happens that at this particular moment he's using nathaniel martin as his mouthpiece right 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 well they walk into the cable tier pullings and jack And Jack tells Tom that regardless of what the doctor says, Jack thinks the surprise smells as sweet or sweeter than the nutmeg. And having spent so much time tied up in Sydney Cove, he notes that the great ropes are warm and dry. So you don't have this big, you know, kind of stink from the harbor coming up there. Tom says she is sweet, but there's still plenty of vermin aboard despite all their pumping. And he kicks one big Norway rat over the nearest coil into the lattice bulwark behind it. And there's this shrill screech, and this person darts out from behind the cables, brushing the rat away. And and Jack's really upset. He's asking asking who this boy is, why he wasn't at division. And then getting a better look, he asks Tom kind of what's going on. And Tom holds the lantern up and says he believes it's a young woman. Jack looks at her notes that she's wearing a reefer's uniform and asks who brought her there. And she says that she came by herself. And he thinks to himself, you know, I could ask her a bunch of questions and trap her in the lie, but I don't want to make her lie repeatedly until she finally is trapped into the truth. So he just asks Tom to carry on. And Tom says, what? And leave her here? (laughs) (laughs) Says, uh, you know, Jack, you heard me take the lantern. You know, like, let's keep going. Wow. This is the event that, that sets up the whole book, at least in theory. Like, this is the event that leads to the, to the name Clarissa Oaks being on the spine of the book, um, at least outside of the United States. This is the event that sets up the main arc that's going on here. As it turns out, so far, at any rate, nothing to do with Jack and Stephen, nothing to do with Chile and Peru, nothing to do with uh, Botany Bay or the liver, this is going to be all about a woman aboard ship. Not the first time we've had this kind of situation, as we might talk about later on, but this is the big moment. And Mike, I was really struck realizing that this is the the big moment when the what you might call the inciting event happens, that we get a really flat response from Jack. Right. What, leave her here? And he's thinking, I'm going to take myself out of this situation. And, and And I don't think we really know whether that's him saying, I'm about to lose it here and I'm going to take myself out of the way before I kind of explode or whether he's thinking to himself, oh, I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm aware that I've I've been the subject of a joke not knowing about this and I want to take myself out of the situation because I feel embarrassed or whether he's just thinking, I'm not going to reward this carry on with any kind of immediate response. I'm going to keep everybody guessing and play kind of high status I'm just going to step away games here. And it could be any of those. It could be all of those. Right. And one of the ones that occurred to me was Jack sort of maybe not even consciously thinking of it, but Jack's so part of the immemorial custom of the service. Like, hey, we're in the middle of divisions here. We don't stop divisions because there's some girl in the cable tier here. And, And, you know, they really do just carry on and leave her there. They inspect the sail rooms, the bosun and gunner and carpenter storerooms. They go to the pitch room and then they return to deck. 
And, and O'Brien tells us that, you know, everybody on deck, all hats come off. And he writes, all faces changed at the sight of Captain Aubrey's pale severity. So clearly, as you point out, Ian, something's going on in Jack's head. He hasn't just walked by this. Boy, it's it's really working in there. And Jack immediately says they're not going to rig church. He says the articles will do for this occasion. And I think he's, you know, to me reading this, this is very specifically given what I just saw and given what's been going on in the ship. I think it's time to get us back to the articles. So Jack reads these articles in his powerful voice, including, O'Brien tells us, 19 of the 36, which are punishable by death. Or in some cases, modified with a punishment fitting the nature and degree of the offense as a court martial shall impose. So for us, I think as readers, for the crew, certainly as listeners, these articles take on a darker and more threatening tone here. And afterwards, you know, this is confirmed because there's this profound silence across the ship filled with great uneasiness, even as these guys go to their Sunday dinner, this you know, this dinner that they love where there's plum duff and grog, they're quiet. And Jack, you know, while they're quietly eating, Jack is silently walking the quarterdeck back and forth, back and forth, as we've seen him so many times. But this time, I think his mind is going nonstop. Yeah. And we're with him, I think, here. His mind is going back to, you remember mutiny on the Polycrest and how close that came to ending everything? Do you remember um, Mrs. Horner back in, what was that, far side of the world and how close that came to ruining everything and how deathly the outcome of that was? This is not a trivial thing for Jack at all, never mind the fact his kind of humiliation and uh, his discontent with the crew's behavior. He knows where this could be leading. And I guess, if my guess is right, then he's meditating on that. And he clearly now, with the scales lifted from his eyes, understands all the half-heard jokes about Mr. O, about his weariness, about how Mr. Oaks needs a sustaining diet. And pure exasperation (laughs) kind of interrupts his judgment. But he does feel in command of his temper, finally, when he goes below and sends for Oaks. And Oaks, we find out, has nothing much to say. We're not rewarded with a great big kind of word-by-word confession from Oaks. It's it's reported to us as, as reported speech and is this very offhand Patrick O'Brien way. We just learned that Oaks had thrown himself on the captain's mercy, confirmed that this woman is a convict but had not been happy there, and hopes that the captain will carry them, meaning Oaks and Clarissa, away. Jack says that Oaks knows fine well he's turned dozens of other convicts away. And Oaks goes straight to one part of Aubrey's humiliation here. He says, but sir, yet you let Padine come aboard. And then clasped his hands in a hopeless, stupid attempt at unsaying the words, doing utterly away with them. And damn right. I mean, he's absolutely right. But that thought belongs in Jack's head. (laughs) and Not on the lips of an insubordinate young young junior officer who's about to find the error of his ways. Um, Jack tells Oaks to get away forward and pack his chest. He's not going to make a decision today, he says. It's Sunday. Meanwhile, he sends his compliments to Captain Pullings and asks to see him after, he emphasizes only after, the gunroom has finished dinner. And Jack clearly, out of order, he's leafing through all of his Humboldt temperature and salinity observations. And at least he's beginning to be a little satisfied. But Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm worried at this point, it's very, very rare that Pullings gets summoned. 
And it's very, right. very rare that we're there with Jack and Pullings when anything other than kind of friendship and collaboration are happening. Pullings is potentially in trouble here. Yeah, yeah. Pullings arrives. Jack tells Tom Oakes's explanation was simply that the woman was unhappy. So it's like, you know, there's no other good reason here. She's just unhappy there, like, you know, none of the other prisoners are. And that Oakes had thrown Padine into Jack's teeth. And Tom asks if Jack really didn't know about this woman being aboard. And Jack says, you know, of course I didn't know. Did you know? And Tom explains that it was common knowledge on the ship, wow. but was thought to be so delicate a situation that the captain chose not to have it brought to his attention so there could be no question about turning back to Botany Bay. And to your point, Ian, you know, this is now this is turning to a very different kind of Jack and Tom conversation than yeah, we've seen yeah. before. Jack asked if it was Tom's duty as first lieutenant to let him know. And, and Tom apologizes if it was, and, and adding that if it had been a regular king's ships with Marines and a master of arms and ship's corporals, Tom would have known it officially and therefore would have been obliged to inform the captain. But in the present situation, he said, he really would have had to listen at doors to confirm it because no one wanted to tell the first lieutenant or the captain so that the captain could not be blamed and could sail on to Easter Island with an easy conscience. And Jack asks if Tom thinks it's too late to turn back. And I'm, I'm really, it's like, oh, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, where's this going? But yeah. before Tom can answer, Killick announces Jack's dinner. So Jack asks Tom to stow what he calls that odious wench forward with the little girls until he decides what to do with her. So we had this, oh man, this, you know, boom, 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 so, tension ratcheting up. Yeah, he's had it out with Oaks and he was kind of only half there. He's had it out with Pullings and he's really learning just what a kind of patsy he's been made of here. Now he has to have it out with Stephen and this is where it gets really deep. Jack goes to see Stephen that night when Stephen comes in with, uh, with Jack's dose and with an enema. And that sounds like a happy way to spend your evening. Here's a pretty kettle of fish, cried Jack, an elegant goddamn kettle upon my word. Solitude, he says, and a heavy afternoon sleep had increased his ill humor, and Stephen did not at all like the color of his face. And for now, Stephen's playing the, the innocent. What's afoot? He asked. What's afoot? This is Jack. What's afoot? Why, the ship is turned into a boardy house. Oaks has had a girl in the cable tier ever since we left Sydney Cove. Everybody knew, and I have been made a fool of in my own command. Oh, that, says Stephen, it's of no great consequence, brother. As for being made a fool of, it is no such matter, but rather a mark of the people's affection, since they wish to avoid your being placed in a disagreeable posture. You knew and did not tell me? Of course I did not. I could not tell my friend Jack, without at the same time telling Captain Aubrey, authority incarnate, and you are to observe that I am not, and never have been, an informer. And this this is a double setback for Stephen. Both his trusted professional partner, Tom Pullings, and his closest particular friend, Stephen Maturin, have both known about this and for ostensibly good reason have chosen not to tell him. And he, he, he really can't cope with this. He says, everyone knows I hate women aboard, worse luck than Parsons or cats. And quite rationally, he says, no good ever came of a woman aboard, as Stephen saw at Juan Fernandez. 
Now, Mike, interestingly, that was the, the moment where the gunner, Mr. Horner, had murdered his wife, as we mentioned, and the midshipman, Hollum, who she'd been having an affair with back on the far side of the world. And I do remember actually Stephen at some point saying there's nothing better for a ship than an und- right? unobtainable but desirable woman changed at stated intervals. So I don't think it's quite fair to say that no good ever came of a woman. But Jack is pretty sure of that. He says she's an odious wench and Oaks is an ungrateful scrub. Yeah. Well, Stephen, with a lot more courage than I think I would have, asked if he's seen her, right? And Jack talks about seeing her in the cable tier for just a minute. And Stephen said that he had met her that afternoon when he stopped by to work with the little girls and their catechism. And he thought she was a young midshipman at first, but learned after talking to her that her name is Clarissa Harville, says she spoke with a really becoming modesty and as a woman of some family and education, a gentlewoman. And Jack says, gentlewomen are not sent to Botany Bay. And Stephen reminds him of Louisa Wogan. So, uh, you know, here we're back, you know, to Fortune of War and following there. Uh, Jack kind of just slides right by that and says that discipline is going all to pieces and invokes Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jack is definitely in catastrophe thinking mode here. He he doesn't want to hear about any of this rational stuff. And Mike, we're going to dig into the text for a couple of paragraphs here because there's some brilliant writing, some brilliant conversation here between Jack and Stephen. Let's start out with Stephen. He says, Dear Jack, if I did not know that your liver was speaking rather than your head or, God preserve us, your heart, this righteous indignation and solemnity would grieve me to say nothing of your broadside of first stones for shame. That's a little allusion to the biblical, uh, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Stephen goes on. As you told me yourself long ago, the service is a sounding box in which tales echo forever. And it is perfectly well known throughout the ship that when you were about Oaks's age, you were disrated and turned before the mast for hiding a girl in that very part of the ship. Surely you must see that this Pope holy sanctimonious attitude has a ludicrous as well as a most unamiable side. And Mike, it, this fills me with uh, unease, discomfort. Stephen is having to really lay out for Jack exactly why it is that Jack's position is a bit ridiculous. Even though Jack appears to have not brought any of this on himself, he's kind of left caught out by his, his reputation, his identity, and some of his previous conduct. Right. Very much so. Well, Jack says he's going to turn them both ashore on Norfolk Island. And Stephen, you know, kind of a little shuffly says, you know, tells Jack to take off his pants and lay over the locker as he brings out the enemy here. And, and you know what? I, I, I should just I should just go right to the text, I think. Well, yeah. I'm just going to observe that with friends like this, who needs enemies? Yeah. <laughs> Too true. And, and and lest we think, this has been Jack's routine dosage every night. He's been getting this medicine, you know, for his liver and his gallbladder, and he's been getting this enema, but now it takes on a little bit different thing. So Stephen says, pray take off your breeches and bend over that locker, you know, said Stephen sending a jet from his enema through the open stern window. You can almost see, you know, one of those classic movie lines with the big, you know, the big needle or something here. Well, yeah. by the way, I, Mike, I think in the movie, this is going to be close up on the enema needle, wide shot out of focus of Jack bent over there. <laughs> okay. I, I love it. Right. And, and the, you know, the text goes on a little later. And from this position of great moral advantage, he, meaning <laughs> even went on. 
Stephen says, what surprises me extremely in this whole matter is that you should so mistake the people's frame of mind. But then in many ways, as their surgeon, I'm closer to them than you are. It appears to me that you do not sufficiently distinguish between the ethos of a man of war and that of the privateer. The prevalent feeling or tone of this community is far more democratic. Consensus is required. And whatever the law may say, you command the surprise, the surprise as a privateer, only because of the respect the people have for you. Your commission is neither here nor there. Your authority depends wholly upon their respect and esteem. If you were to order them to put a callow youth and a slip of a girl down on a virtually abandoned island and sail off with me and Padine, you would lose both. You know, talking about his commission, his authority, yeah. the respect yeah. and esteem there. It says, you have many old followers on board who might say, my captain, right or wrong, but you have no Marines, and I do not think the followers would prevail with the community as it now stands and with its overriding sense of what is fair and right. You may put your breeches on again. So, you know, Stephen has clearly, you know, laid it out. I, I think, no, you know, as a, or, yeah, as a real friend, yep. as a, you know, he's, he's doing what's right for the situation. He's doing what's right for his friend. He is just, and, and, and I think this is Stephen's view of the world as yeah. well, or, yeah. or how the world should be here. But, I, and I'm waiting for Jack to say, oh my gosh, you're right. But he doesn't say that. No, we, we, we get a little echo back of Killick and William Grimshaw about this. We get these two lines. Damn you, Stephen Maturin. And damn you, Jack Aubrey. Swallow this draft half an hour before retiring. The pills you may take if you do not sleep, which I doubt. End of chapter one. Right. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're off, right? Um, we are absolutely off. We've got a whole menu of different bits of foreshadowing. And it turns out that it's sexual desire and stowaways that are going to drive our story forward, at least for now. And Mike, once again, we had cause to mention at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of the book, Chile, Peru, Latin America, independence from Spain, that's still kind of bubbling away in the background. But what do you think? Are we even going to get to see South America in this book? Well, I'm so with you. you know, I've been on this South America kick for forever, and I think we're not going to see anything of South America, given if I'm reading the, the UK title, Clarissa Oaks, I, I suspect we're going to see a lot more of Miss Clarissa. Yeah. And as you say, all this foreshadowing has kind of led us here with Jack's frustrated things on shore with the harken back to the gunner and the midshipman and the gunner's wife. Even the Louisa Wogan yeah. thing, you know, yeah. makes us think about Johnson and Diana and you know all of that here. And the tension to me is is just as palpable as you know as when we've got a French squadron, you know, bearing down on them here with Jack's temper where it is even when he's bent over a locker, yeah. <laughs> you know, and somebody has an enema with me bent over a locker. I think I'd modify my response just a little bit just, here, just but no, not well, Jack. I, I think it's quite unlikely anytime soon that any of my particular friends are going to find, find themselves in that position, but you never know. <laughs> right. Right. So he's not, uh, he's not shoving it up Jack's um, uh, moral advantage at all, is he? No, no. And, 
It's funny, Stephen mentions the incident of Jack's youth in the cable tier, but we don't have a lot of dwelling on that, especially not by Jack. To yeah. Jack, it's like, this has never happened at all. And this is, this is the, to me, you know, I can kind of see uh, Stephen playing a little bit of the role of Dickens' ghosts here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jack is seeing the past and the present and everything else. And, and Jack, a little Scrooge-like in, uh, you know, in this situation here. Yeah. Well, as, as we've said already, there's a lot of darkness associated with these ideas, the idea of stowaways, the idea of shipboard illicit or perhaps illicit relationships. As you say, far side of the world, that didn't turn out well. Desolation Island also didn't end particularly well for the shipmates besides those concerned. We do get a bit of a bad feeling, just like Stephen does, thinking about this couple being dropped off on an island. We've had Owens and Phillips telling all their scary tales of wrecks and dangerous waters and coral and no anchorages. Let's go back to the opening paragraph, Mike. Uh, a, a, a wanton gripe, a, you know, a, a tale that kinks out of the teller's control a little bit. I wonder if there's going to be any more gripes in this story, no matter what anyone does. I guess there's only one way to find out. What do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. week in chapter one, the Enterprise sets sail for Easter Island and Norfolk <laughs> Island. <laughs> yeah, but Mike, it's not the Enterprise. Oh, God, the Enterprise. <laughs> Listen to me. All right, there, there's an outtake. Steve, Steve Morris outtake. Sam, you can uh, pop it right in there. Yes. Oh, my gosh, the Enterprise. I love that. So I don't think these books are much like Star Trek whatsoever.